right. Well, this morning, I'm going to be starting what is going to be a partial series on the Apostles' Creed in the few weeks that I'm here. I'm going to be here today, obviously, and then a few times next week so that Charlie can catch up on his vacation. Just a word to the wise, Charlie is uh, sly and wise. We met for lunch not too long ago, and I was really leaning into him and encouraging him. Hey, bro, you've got a lot of vacation time. You need to catch up on. You should really do that. He was like, you're right. You fill in for me. <laughs> so I couldn't exactly say no after I was leaning on it. So anyway, I'll, but I'm I'm grateful to be here. And we are going to be looking at, uh, we're going to be using the Bible, obviously. We're always opening up God's word when we're together. But we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, uh, the few weeks that I'm going to be here. And probably every time I come After that, I'm just going to pick up where I left off in the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, something that we're going to say a little bit later, it was not actually written by the Apostles. And we think of the Apostles kind of like maybe we think about the Avengers, that they were these super Christians. But they were just pastors uh, who God had called and and to to put together a foundation for how it is that we're going to go in the world uh, following Jesus. And the Creed is a summary of what some of the apostles taught. And so I want us to consider pastorally what it means for us to confess this creed together, how it actually disciples us, shapes us, forms us into certain kinds of people as we say it in faith. Now, the first words of the creed are, I believe. But that's actually getting ahead of where I want us to go this morning. I want to back up little bit in good Presbyterian form. We're just going to hunker down on, on one word. I want to back up to the I of the I believe. The first word of the creed actually is maybe the strangest. It's the most contentious for us. Who is the I saying I believe? Well, you might say it's me, but who are you? Who, who is that? When we say I, we need to think about what we are saying, who it is that we are. And then I think that we can roll into the confession of what is supposed to be our most fundamental allegiance in our deepest expression of Christian knowledge and hope, which is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. Look, your and my identity, the I-ness, the I of who we are, is constantly being challenged, contested. And I would even say that who we are, when you say I, is not stable. That it's constantly being reconfigured by both cultural and subcultural influences, by the stuff that's out there and even stuff in here about being what it is to be a part of being an American or Oregonian, as well as what it means to be a part of hope, as a part of, to, a part of the PCAs, culture and subculture. Lots of things compete to define us most fundamentally, they want our allegiance. They want to shape who it is that we are principally. So let's think about some examples. Oregonian, right? You're, you're, you're an Oregonian. What does it mean to be an Oregonian? It means maybe, hopefully, you like beer a little bit. Uh, outdoors, you're not too dressy. Uh, you're not a Californian. If you're a Californian, you're loved, you're welcome. But there's just a little bit of that in the air about being um, an Oregonian. Or maybe what claims our identity, fights for the I-ness of our identity, is being an American. Don't even have time. That's a whole other series on how we are so 
tangled and warped politically right now and defining even what it means to be an American. Maybe, though, for you, it's not that. It's education, right? That you are a homeschooler. You're a private schooler. You're a public schooler. Or what we've seen with education, there's kind of been a rebirth of Gnosticism. How do we know that? Because conspiracy theories abound. I know something you don't know. And that has a lot of traction. Or maybe for you, identity gets down to gender and the expectations that attend that. Being a man, being a woman, father. And like unto that sex, who it is you desire romantically is the most basic thing, important thing about you. And then, of course, things like race, ethnicity. I'm Czech, I'm Latino, Thai, whatever it is, or I'm white, which actually isn't an ethnicity. It's not a thing at all. Another sermon for another time. Or success. Now we're getting into what it means to live in the suburb of the PCA, right? having stuff, having status, achievement. Or maybe you've decided, I'm going to cast that off. I have no attachment to it at all. And that's my status in relation to success and achievement. So lots of things competing for identity. And all of those are theological, by the way. But as well as those things, right, we tend to think of ourselves because we are Americans or live in America as individuals and radically so that each one of us is special and unique in a way of our own doing. And that mindset that is uh, reinforced of we're almost self-creating. One of our earliest poets, and by our, I mean American, was a guy named Walt Whitman. A couple different times in, in different places, he wrote things like, I celebrate myself. Why? Because as an individual, that was his most basic category. I contain multitudes. I might be a contradiction, but whatever is contradicting within me, that's at least an authentic expression of who I am. And so to be an individual is oftentimes an expression of our allegiances, our tastes, our preferences, our purchasing choices, our vacations, our hobbies, our kind of work. Lots having to do with making and remaking ourselves, especially, I would say, in consuming things. Those compete for the I of who you are. And you stand there saying, I believe. Digging a little bit deeper, Robert Bell, a sociologist at Berkeley, in his book, Habits of the Heart, called this tendency to define the I, like I was just walking through, expressive individualism. Now, I could give you a sociology definition of that, but you already know what it is because we live in this air. We, we breathe that in together. It's expressive individualism is things like, you be you. You just do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. And look, I'm not sitting up here wagging my finger saying, y'all should be more like me because I'm not like that. I have said all of those things at different times. I have acted on them. I have nodded in assent when others have said them. So the, the, the loop here is broad and wide and includes the preacher. Yuval Levin in his book, uh, Fractured Republic, said that expressive individualism, all right, 
piggybacking on already what we've talked about, fighting for our identity, suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive, listen to me y'all, it is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are, okay, you want to be your most authentic self, and to live in a society by fully asserting who you are. I want society to, I, I'm going to be a radical individual, but I need to. T- I need society and others to tell me it's okay to do that as well. So the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty, freedom. I hope this is landing and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it's a given pride of place in our self-understanding. It's the idea of what it means to be you and I, maybe competing for that, are things like freedom and rights just baked into the cake of who you are. Does it resonate? Does it feel obvious? Probably it does feel obvious, like common sense. This is the air that we breathe. This is our cultural and subcultural atmosphere. And let me just say this. Not all of it is wrong. I'm not just pointing you. This has all come up from Dante's pit, right? It's all from hell. Um, but not all of it's wrong-headed. But as individuals, and, and, and let's affirm something good in that. We recognize that we are all individuals, that each one of us personally, existentially matters, and we matter to God at least, right? So much so that Jesus says, hey, the numbers, the, the numbers of your hair, that, how's it go? That your hair is numbered, whether it's on your head or on your chin or wherever, right? You matter. God knows you intimately and personally. But when being an individual or individualistic becomes our truest self, when this self-understanding is prior and preeminent to us before anything else, this self-creating tendency, what scripture says, what the creed says is we become untethered. We become isolated, shallow, and actually and ironically not our the best version of ourselves if we want to use that language. We need something more. Because this self is fundamentally unstable. It's always seeking, but never finding. It's like a bee in the spring going from flower to flower, looking for that right dose of pollen, but never getting it. Whatever it is, bees are pulling out. Always craving is what our identity is, but never satisfied. It's not stable. And very often what that means is other people function as props to affirm this search for our most authentic self. And the deal we make with those other people is uh, to do the same for them. That's why you have this kind of tolerance, right? About you do you. There's really no accounting for accountability or fixed measuring. This isn't just me reading a bunch of sociology. This is actually me reading the Bible and theology. This is someone like Augustine said, what our heart is restless until it rests in you, recognizing just this capacity to flit to be unstable, to always be looking and not to have what we're looking for. We need our rest in God. What is then our truest self? Who is the I? What is the identity that is being shaped when we confess the creed, when we confess Christ, when we come to Christ? 
Well, the creed was used as an early confession of faith, actually a baptismal vow, if you were. It's kind of like the, the earliest uh, membership vows, membership confession that someone would t- say, that they would confess, that they would recite whenever they would come into the fellowship of God's people. Now, it's interesting, and this is actually one of the critiques that people will make against the Apostles' Creed, is that it doesn't include anything about baptism in it, it, it right? Couldn't it just finally settle? Is it believer's baptism or infant baptism, whatever? Well, it doesn't do that, but actually what's going on is it assumes baptism all along. And however, that function, baptism and the creed are wed together. They are merged together, as it were, coupled as confession and sign. So it's about being a Christian. The eye that speaks then, this is getting into us, because we're about to do this. It's so great. We get to actually apply the sermon immediately after. The eye that speaks is the body of Christ. You, as a member of the body of Christ, you are joined to Christ by faith and baptism. You are actually joined to one another, mysteriously, mystically even, by faith and baptism. And in that joining, you are sealed with all the commitments and truths that that entails in becoming one with Jesus in one another. To put it another way, creed, the Apostles' Creed, is community words. It is shared words. The truest and most important things that we can ever say are not individual words, but communal words. So you think about it, most of the words, uh, at least in my life, are are trivial, they're fleeting, they're just kind of things that I pop off. Just imagine if you could walk around with one of these old school mics, you know, a a lapel clipped, and it's recording all the things you've said, um, you know, and just the offhand comments that you make that fall from your lips and drift away. Y'all heard me when I was driving, you wouldn't let me up here probably, right? There's all these things that just kind of, we pop off. And so many of these things, these individual self-centered things, they just come out and then just drift away like dead leaves, including words that are often used to forge identity. But what you say as a community, I believe in God. There's a whole host of things that are going on there that cause you to abide, that actually builds you into something as a human, as a Christian. So, for example, look at Romans Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To confess the creed is to take up a both a countercultural stance, but also a culture-forward stance. We're not just reacting when we're saying the creed. We're not just building a fortress. We're building a bridge. We're saying this is something here about being united to Jesus. It makes us a kind of person that is worth confessing and becoming and leaning into it and going out into the world. Theologian Ben Myers, the Australian guy, says this. When we say the creed, we're not just expressing our own views or our own priorities. We are joining our voices to a great communal voice that calls out across the centuries from every tribe and every tongue. We locate ourselves as a part of that community that transcends time and place and ethnicity and race and all of this stuff. We are centered, in other words, as gods and each other's. And we're acknowledging before God 
into ourselves with other saints, that what is most true about us as individuals together with others is the uh, that we, I, am made with dignity to know and to be known by the maker of heaven and earth, that I am redeemed from bondage to sin by the Son, and I am formed by the Spirit in community. Our most, our identity is most truly what God gives us and makes us in Christ by trust in Him. Who is the I? That's just the question that we're asking this morning. We were made for God, but sin ruined those desires. Now those desires, like Luther says, have been curved in on themselves and we try to seek that God filled void in our lives with God's creation, whether it's our own ego or whether it's other people or things like that. But we don't try and fill it with God. But now we've been found by Jesus and the hold that sin had on us is broken, broken, snapped. And now we're being held together. We're being discipled by the Holy Spirit with others in the same need of grace and renewal and joy and hope. You see, in baptism, nobody is invited to come up with their own personal statement of belief. We might have various, and we do, various and sundry ways in which God has brought us to himself, but the testimony is kind of the same. I was lost and now I'm found. All are invited to be immersed into a reality beyond themselves and to join their individual voices as individuals to a communal voice that transcends them all, is above all of them, and yet shares in all of them. First Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. It's another way of saying we need other people. Not to affirm us simply in our search, our constant searching, our constant attempts at meaning making, but to uphold us, to shape us as whole, as solid people in Christ. What am I saying? You want to be free? The restlessness, the feeling enthralled to the whims of culture or subculture politics or whatever it is, the creed is said by lots of different people in different cultures, in different sociological and historical situations, different places, different times. And so when we do this, there is a real sense in which we are actually being catechized by the older saints, bearing witness to one another. See, we are reminded by the confessing of the creed that God has saved others in different times and gotten them through. And we remember God's faithfulness then. And we affirm it now. And we affirm it for one another. And we speak it forward to Christians who will look back. Are we going to speak it faithfully? Or, or, or are we going to speak it at all? Put it another way, the creed is like a wormhole. Not to get too sci-fi on you. Um, but it transcends our own culture and its pitfalls. And it helps us in it. You know what a wormhole is, right? I, I didn't know until I was, you know, heard, heard something about it. A wormhole is a theoretical passage through space and time 
that can create shortcuts for long journeys through the universe. It's kind of like folding a piece of paper, right? So you're here, and then you're wanting to get in there, space-time, and the wormhole kind of folds you like that. That's the only visual illustration I will burden you with. Um, 1935, Einstein, of all people, used the theory of general relativity to propose the existence of such bridges in space and time. Stephen Hugh, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but he's a professor of theoretical physics at Oregon, said the whole thing is very hypothetical at this point. No one thinks we're going to find a wormhole anytime soon. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're in one right now. Who knows? But I would argue, not from physics, but from theology, that we have already found that bridge that crosses space and time, that wormhole. And it is gathered worship. And it's especially confessing the creed. You see, we're folding the paper between heaven, which is what the world will be one day, the saints triumphant with Christ in his presence now, and earth, what the world is now, where we are now trying to gut through and be faithful now, that that is bridged in worship and in the confession of our common creed. And we are made whole. We are helped to be made whole and held up by that community as we participate in that. And that didn't erase us as individuals. In fact, it deepens your reality as an individual of God. That's what Paul's getting at here in Galatians. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. He's not just melting everything into this one glob of joy and good feelings, right? Of course, people are still women, still Greeks, still Oregonians, still whatever. But now they are shaped and discipled by the presence and power of Jesus in such a way that as they are those things, what takes preeminence in those things is Christ. They aren't those things in as sinful a way, but they are transformed in a Christian way. Who are you? Who am I? The eye of the cream. Heidelberg puts it like this, and I'll land the plane with this. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, life and in death to my faithful Savior. Jesus Christ. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's who you are. That's who we are. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear us now as we cry out individually collectively as the body of Christ and as members of Christ to help us to be more peacefully, yet rigorously Christian in all of the different ways that you've called us to embody this life. And help us by all the means that you give us. Word, sacrament, and prayer. Pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.